Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a former competitive bodybuilder, and I'm a nutrition and an exercise physiology professor. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild. I'm also a powerlifter, a Highland Games athlete, and I run USSF, Lifting Federation. We got a couple meets coming up. I had one last weekend, got another one this coming weekend, and Nationals is right around the corner. So if anybody's interested in any of that, um, look us up at USSFLifting.com. Sweet. You're running all kinds of stuff these days. I know. I know. It's good. Always something going on. Well, you know what? Uh... The world is what we make of it, brother. You That's, know? Right. That's right. So, okay, uh, we got a little bit of news here. Um, Strength and muscle sport news. Let's see. First of all, although he's not joining us at the moment, what you will hear after the break uh, is an interview with uh, Dr. Joey Antonio. Uh, Joey is not only one of the founding fathers of the ISSN, a big sports nutrition group, but he also uh, has postdoc training related to muscle physiology and satellite cells and that sort of thing. So a question came up on our Facebook page months ago that stuck in my mind. which was about what's the role of satellite cells or you might call this muscle memory, you know, or permanent muscle or all that kind of thing. I mean, this draws in topics, everything from anabolic steroids to guys who regain their lost size very quickly, all that kind of stuff, Uh, hyperplasia versus just muscle hypertrophy. So we're going to get to that after the break. Um, But beforehand, Phil and I are just going to shoot the shit a little bit. Uh, We have some... Facebook page stuff. What were some of those questions there? Um, we had a question from Hannibal Barker. He said a question for this week's episode. Um, Phil, if you had one, if you had to recommend just three books on strength training, what are they? And Lonnie, if you had to recommend just three books on tr- nutrition, what are they? Only catches. They have to be readable without a college degree in either subject. Um, I'll go ahead and go first since I kind of went on there and told him already. That's that's really tough to just pick three because there's so many good books on training. If I was going to pick three um, without sitting back and really thinking or, or going to my bookcase, um, three three of them that I think are easy, good reads, and have a lot of information in them would be I like the Everything Over My Head series by Dan John. Um, Dan's just always got good, simple info. Uh, you know, it's just... Keep it simple. Work hard. Definite, yeah. Stuff. Iron Radio approved guy there for sure. Um, and then I like Practical Programming by by Rip and Long Kilgore. Um, there's a lot of good information in there. I'd even argue that it, I liked it better than Starting Strength um, because it's just it. It's more in depth. It's not about here's a program. It's more about the fundamentals. Um, and then my third one was I, I picked 531 and that's just because me and Wendler's trading philosophies are so so close even as far as percentages and stuff like that um, I, I like a, I like that program a lot and, and what he goes into you know for a non-academic it's not like he did a crap ton of research or anything to make that come out but I mean it's just one of those like real world observations you know yeah. the whole 531 thing yeah I've always 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've always sort of looked at that like you don't have to do maxes all the time to get stronger. Yeah. You know, if you yeah. lift near your max in sort of low to medium rep ranges and you do it systematically, you get strong. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Um, I'm going to say the same thing I always say when this comes up, which is find yourself a good college textbook, a freshman textbook, because – Again, you don't have to have a college degree to understand a freshman textbook. Therefore, people who have never seen the material before. And I'm always pushing the Mel Williams Nutrition for Health, uh, Fitness, and Sport. It's just a really good book. And what I like about it is it ramps up. It starts off simple, very simple. Uh, literally, like, these are food sources of carbs. You know, these are fats. You know, that kind of thing. But then there's also many literature reviews in that thing on what's the state of the art with caffeine, with creatine, you know, different supplements and diets, low-carb diets. Um, and on top of all that, Dawn Anderson, who has been on the show before, she's now one of the co-authors of that book. So I even have friends writing that thing. Um, it's just a fantastic book from a sports angle. Uh, and if I go with more textbooks, if you want a basic nutrition book, I like to have my students pick up a basic nutrition class before they take my sports nutrition class because it's, sports is sort of a specialty topic, you know, but mm-hmm. um, actually I've done a lot of the educational CDs and, and PowerPoints that go with a lot of these books. Um, Judy Brown uh, does one called Nutrition Now. Uh, Gordon Wardlaw does one. I can't remember the name uh, of his book, Contemporary Nutrition maybe, but they're real straightforward, and I, they start with things like, Here's the different tools that we plan diets with. I mean, something as simple as like a food guide pyramid or a myplate.gov kind of thing or label reading. You know, it starts off pretty basic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then they ramp up a little bit um, before you get into any kind of clinical or sports nutrition or special topics. But those are two basic and one sports nutrition books that come to mind. Again, Williams, Brown, and Wardlaw. Uh, Wardlaw is down from Ohio State, actually. Um, and again, that's just off the top of my head. I've got bookshelves with this kind of stuff. Uh, but one of my problems with industry-type books, even with something like Dan John, is there's a lot of professional opinion in them. And they can be good. But when you think about evidence, like if you're going to change your practice, if you're uh, you know, like a professional, you don't do it based on professional opinion you know, or someone's thoughts on a topic. You do it based on research as much as possible. Uh, even an experienced person is just an N of one. So uh, anyway, the, the point being is I've known some people who are very well educated with industry-type books. Uh, and you're talking to them. You're like, wow, you know a lot about this or that. And then if you keep talking to them for you know 20 minutes or more, you start to see big gaps. And you're like, oh, no, see, that's, that's – you need to read about that. Or, and that's why I like textbooks. They, they're a broad base. They cover all the relevant angles – yeah. And to me, they're a good start to get a, a textbook in place under your belt. And they're not as dry as you think these days. They're colorful. They have all these interactive things. I mean, you know, because textbooks are so expensive, students don't want to pay for it. So they're not the old black and white kind of things they used to be. But the point be- being is if you get through one of those first, then you move on to some industry books. Then you can see sort of, you know, you get a sound footing. And then you can really appreciate what some of these guys are saying in the industry you're like oh yeah that's not only is that what the academics say but he's got some really good insights beyond it um 
So that's why I like textbooks. I think they lay down a very broad base. Anyway, and again, they don't they don't have to be for seniors, right? There are freshman level books for 19-year-olds who have never seen a lick of this material. So yeah. that's why I always push that. We had another good one come up on the page um, about a guy was asking, without going and reading it, he's been doing his programming and as of yet hadn't been using a belt. Um, and also said that uh, he hasn't been doing like uh, mixed grip on his deadlift and this and that. And is he is he making a mistake by not doing that? And um, I'll start off with the deadlift. I'd say no. I don't think you're making a mistake. I'd actually push you to go double overhand until your grip becomes a problem. Uh, the good thing about going double overhand is it's going to make your grip stronger, um, more so than than the mixed grip. Um, and then once it's a problem, then then change. But I mean, if you're not having a problem, don't change. Um, and then the belt, geez, there's so many. Two, the mainly two different sides of this camp. There's the people that think belts make you weak, and then there's the people you know, like Ripto's definitely on the side that a belt will actually make you stronger if you use it right. And I'm kind of in that camp. And and on that uh, on that note, uh, another listener dropped me a line and and asked me to kind of explain that um, how to use a belt right. I think a belt, when used right, can can make you stronger. Um, and the, the biggest mistake I've seen people make is they they buy they buy a belt, they take that thing, and they strap it on as hard as they can, and they're kind of using it as a crutch. Um, I, I I teach people initially we put the belt on really loose, and then they have to engage themselves out against the belt. Um, and then over time we we tighten it up. Um, if if you end up putting it on too tight too fast, they don't they're not able to pressurized down against the belt um, and they'll end up holding all their air up in their chest and uh, it's not I, I don't see the the belt as kind of a back protector that everybody thinks it is it's more of a it's an anchor for your abdominal wall something to push out on real hard yeah so yeah. and that's where I don't know it's like any muscle group I can only activate my pec so hard when I'm pushing on nothing but if I get something in front of me and I push against it now I can activate my muscles a lot harder and, and the same thing with your abdominal wall there I think with the belt so I'd say, you know, that'd be the, the the case I'd lean towards. But still, I mean, I won't throw a belt on until, you know, I don't know, 3, 315, 405 on squats. You know, it depends day to day. But, you know, I'll get warmed up and then I'll throw it on. But Yeah, so. I really need to get a belt from you that's a decent width. You know, I still have that yeah. old bodybuilder leather belt thing, you know. And, and I do tend to wear it pretty low, but I do that for a reason. I mean, I've had a twinge from an old squat session years ago and I basically don't want to have an inguinal hernia. Yeah. 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 Um, but so I really want something that ha- that comes up higher up my gut though so I can push against it more. Yeah. Uh, because what I end up doing is almost getting that kind of um you know, you push yeah. out like Louis Armstrong's cheeks, you know, against a yeah. horn and my yeah. upper gut pushes out over the top of the belt because I'm pushing yeah. so hard. I think it's And that's cool. why I like those the, the four inch power belts work pretty good. Yeah, four. Okay. I, I mean, we may have to talk after we hang yeah. up here because <laughs> yeah. I really need one. Anyway. Uh, um, I don't know. What else do you got news-wise? I can well, there was that things. question on the Facebook page about, um, it's, again, an age-old question about how much protein it wants. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there are a few caveats with that. I mean, the flat answer is we didn't even know until the last probably three to five years 
Uh, I used to tell people it's between 6 and 40 grams of protein because di- different research said different things. Mm. Um, a lot of it coming out of those labs like Stu Phillips and you know uh, Mark Tarnopolsky and all those guys up there in Toronto. But then one of the guys, for, again from the Toronto group, uh, they said it's 20 grams, just period. Uh, they fed people escalating doses of protein. We covered uh, this on an earlier show, but... Um, and they kept fe- feeding them a little bit more, doubling the dose. And basically, once you get up to like 40 grams, it becomes a bit of a waste. Um, now, they used egg protein. And that here's the caveat is I don't know if that is slightly different for different proteins. I mean, egg is a darn good protein, but would it be different from whey? Um, yeah. And, you know, we've talked on the show before, too. And apparently, John Mike told me there's a new paper out about this, that the leucine content, if you spike, you could spike as little as six grams, apparently of protein with uh, maybe three or four grams of leucine and it's the equivalent of a full dose um, at least outside of the post-workout period so um, the leucine content is a big part of this and I think for practical reasons you know let's say you eat five meals a day you get 30 grams of protein each one of those that doesn't sound like a lot that's 150 protein a day is all Um, and I don't have any problem with people eating more than that is that going to trigger muscle protein synthesis any further? No, it probably won't. Now, again, yeah. the guys that got the 20-gram dose, there might be a body size thing here as well. So, you know, if you're a big 280-pound dude, maybe you need, maybe it is 30 instead of 20. Yeah. You know, but um, just being practical, you're eating a roughly 30 grams of protein five times a day, and maybe it's six times a day. Um, anything beyond that can still be helpful, and I think Lonnie Ducote pointed this out actually <coughs> on our Facebook page, but um, it can still be helpful. You got to eat something, a right. Yeah. You got to eat something, and if you're trying to get lean, eating carbs and fats, more carbs and fats is not really going to be helpful. But eating more protein is much less likely to become body fat. Sometimes a dietitian might tell you, "Oh, well, excess calories of any forms leads, leads to body fatness." But I always respond to that with, without even getting into the metabolism that I understand better than most. Beyond metabolic specialness, how many people do you know who got obese on egg whites and skinless chicken breasts? <laughs> you know, no. Yeah. The answer would be zero. So yeah. um, it's it's foolish to tell someone that eating extra calories from protein is going to make them fat. Yeah. Um, so I think it plays a role on helping you stay full and keep your metabolism up. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we're still back no, to I, I think gram per pound uh, roughly, you know, spread over the course of a day. I don't know. And I think the the main thing I think that we finally hit on in that little thread was that uh, it's it's not that anything more than that's going to be a waste. It's that the protein synthesis itself is not going to be at a higher level. You know, it's you're still going to use that protein. You know, it's not like you're going to crap out pieces of steak. Um, it's just that the actual protein synthesis itself is not going to be elevated to a level higher than that. But right. it's just, you know what? Uh, over time, you're going to use it. They always seem to default and not not our guys not this discussion but so often people default to this idea that how much can you digest at once and like you said Mm -hmm. you're not going to be crapping out big chunks of burger and steak i mean you're going to digest more than 90 probably 92 maybe 95 percent of that exactly Uh, where it what limits you is once those amino acids that used to be in those proteins get into your bloodstream do you have enough anabolic hormones and other processes to drive it into muscle tissue? Right? Yes. That's the limiting factor. I mean, why do athletes abuse anabolic steroids? Because once you swallow the protein and you digest it so well, like you're pointing out, those amino acids get deposited in actin and myosin and, 
you know, in the muscles, um, various compartments in the muscle, but you get the idea. And so that's the limitation. It's not how much you really absorb, I don't think, so much. Because, you know, all these companies, they sell digestive enzymes and all this other stuff. And, I mean, maybe if you have problems with digestion, you might want to toy with those things. But if not, you do a really good job, your intestines do, of getting the amino acids into your bloodstream. Um, If you don't use the extra amino acids, your liver strips the nitrogen off of them and you pee out the nitrogen, right? And uh, like in sports nutrition class, I'll actually show people some scans from students that I've had in studies. I remember one guy in particular, he would eat two chicken breasts and a packet of Metrex, a 50-gram protein dose of Metrex every meal. (laughs) And he had some of the most expensive pee on the planet, you know? (laughs) It was just such a waste. Um, And what he should have done at that point is eat more calories, right? You can't just keep flooding in hundreds and hundreds of grams of protein. And that's where sometimes gurus sort of frankly piss me off online. They'll say, well, I eat 50 grams. I eat 1.5 grams of protein per pound or 2 grams of protein per pound. To me, unless you're desperate to stay full, there's not a lot of reason to do that. They do that because they're using anabolic drugs, um, and not everybody is doing that. So they should at least qualify and say, I do this. But I also do everything it takes to compete <laughs> at a uh, national level. Yeah. You know, and they leave that part out. They say it works for me, so it should work for you. And I think that's where the confusion comes from. But it is surprising how low it's actually a lower dose than you might think, especially if you're getting three or 4,000 calories of energy into you. I don't know. You, you just don't need 50 grams of protein every meal. Yeah. And, you know, that's coming <laughs> from the guy who wrote the book on protein. I mean, <laughs> you're on the cover, bro. <laughs> so it's... um. Science, you know, sort of moves on. It's very, very important, but it's uh, we get excited and we overdo it, you know. And uh, again, the limitation is in the bloodstream and at the muscle site of the muscle, not so much what you digest. Um, We were going to mention the shirts and stuff. Um, Let me just mention those one more time. I got a few of them left. If you go to, it's on my site. If you go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com, um, go to the blog, and then hit, I think it's clothing. Uh, you'll find it under there if anybody's interested. Um, thank you, everybody. We, we sold up a, a good deal of them. Um, I'm glad everybody supported that a lot It's uh, now that we're getting some products out there. And then um, yeah, the banners. The banners went like hotcakes. So... Um, I, saw I them, don't right? have those up anywhere. Didn't somebody post a picture of uh, some yeah. champion training underneath an iron radio banner? I'm like, woo yeah. So we have a uh, we, – we got those as well. If anybody's interested in one, just just drop us a line. You can drop me a line on Facebook or whatever. And uh, if you're interested in those, we'll get one. Uh, you can purchase one to put up on your gym. So, so let me <sighs> clarify that. You will, you'll make one for somebody? Yeah. All right. Damn, yeah. Made I think, order. I think that is a was... service establishment right there. Yeah, that's right. $25 for a banner is what we were doing. So that's not bad. Awesome. Our two-foot by four-foot banner. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's not bad. I can make them one at a time. So. Yeah, well, you know what? If we're not going to be underwritten by, um, you know, swole tech <laughs> and, start, <laughs> and start, you know, hawking stuff, then that's, that's a great way for us to, A, we get the word out, you know, yeah. and B... If there's a little bit of profit on top of what it costs to actually print it, I'm sure it'll be very small. But, it, you know, it's something to help. It can help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. <laughs> exactly. Jeez, um, I don't know what else is going on. You had uh, somebody sent you some information about Richard Hawthorne. Yes. Yeah. Um, What's your thoughts there? 
he's strong. Yeah, he's he's, he's impressively strong. If people haven't, you can look him up. Uh, Richard Hawthorne, H A W T H O R N E. Um, he's a small guy, uh, sixty kilo, so he lifts in the one thirty two pound weight class, but he's deadlifting right under six hundred pounds, so four point five times body weight. Raw, uh, yeah, right? Raw. Yeah, raw. You know, there's. There's videos of him up doing 518 for eight with no belt, no nothing, at uh, 128 pounds. Um, and what was his total, 15 or 1450 or something like that? So, yeah, that's just uh, – that's incredibly strong for a 128-pound dude. <laughs> you know what? Right Maybe it's because there's, the, uh, there's a bigger sample to draw for, from, you know, like a genetic sample. But um, I don't know, dude. Uh, raw? And presumably natural, I don't know, but raw lifters are doing crazy things these days. Yeah, you're seeing a lot more of it, and uh, which is good. I, I love that it's coming back pretty good. But uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty impressive. Um, geez, here here's a video of him. He's doing 610 for four. So <laughs> so it's all over YouTube. Um, yeah, this was in the this was at the Arnold, I think. Um, where he did that. So, yeah, you're seeing some little guys. You know, you got Richard Hawthorne. Vashon Perryman has been doing a ton. He's a 165. We're going to move up to 181. Um, Vashon's from right here in Topeka, where I'm from. Oh, cool. um, and he just took over. He's, he's taken over a couple of the world records now as a 165 weight class lifter. You know, you and, mentioned 4.5 times body weight. And, again, I don't want to take anything from these guys. They're a hell of a lot stronger than I am. Yeah. But, you know, in some ways it's unfair to the big guys. Um, because <laughs> Well, that's where, know, that's where the whole, will never, you know, Wilkes formula and all that comes right, in. Right, exactly. Sure. That's why you got to have a little formula. I mean, you're not going to see a 160-pounder pulling 850 pounds anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. Right. But, uh, Multiples of body weight, it just becomes unfair. Uh, yeah, at, at a certain point guys. it does. It's that whole strength curve thing that people don't get. Everybody's like... You know, everybody always says it's so much more impressive, and I'm not. I'm not putting the littler guys down. Hell yeah, 610 pounds at at 130 pounds body weight is damn impressive. But it's no more impressive than you know 1,018 with Benedict Magnuson weighing what 350 or 380 or whatever he was. You know, it is nice um, though to look at the smaller guys too, because we don't talk about that quite as much. But you know how you were saying the other week that. You know, some of these strongman competitors, they're all 6'5", 4'10". Yeah. You know, yeah. they weigh over 400 pounds. And, you know, and in one sense, you're like, well, of course you're going to have bigger numbers. I mean, an elephant can move more weight than a mouse, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. But you don't want to take that from them either. It's just, it's nice to look no, at both ends of it, you know. And it's it's good nowadays. You're seeing you're seeing some of the smaller guys get a little more airtime, which is good. And it's it's making people realize that powerlifting just isn't, isn't just for... You know the heavyweight lifters. Good point. The two seventy fives, the three hundred eights, and super heavies and stuff. So, and that's kind of been a fault of the the sport since the beginning. I mean, even if you go back to like the old nineteen eighty World Championships, they would like from the you know the one twenty eight class up through one eighty one, they they'd rush through that and do like a little highlight film, and then they'd show the they'd show all of the heavier weight ones. I hate to say this, but it's kind of human nature. It's like boxing. They, people want to see the heavyweight match. Exactly. Heavyweight champion of the world. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Rob would Rob would flip about this, but oftentimes Rob will say, people are so confused. They say, of course you move that much weight. You weigh over 300 pounds. And he'll say, well, you know, that's a chicken or the egg argument. Uh, is it that I move that much weight because I'm big? Or maybe I'm big because I move so much weight. Yeah. And I can understand both sides of it. But yeah. it is true that a really big boned, big framed person with 
low tendon insertions on his joints, he's just going to have he, – he's a bigger um, building. You know, he's a bigger structure. Yeah. Uh, and he is going to move some more weight simply because – and, again, you really see that in those strongman guys that are freaking <laughs> yeah. 400 plus. Exactly. And that's where powerlifting, I think, is a little different. It's more – there's more room for the little guy, <laughs> you know, because they have the weight classes, whereas you're never going to see, uh, you know, world's strongest 128-pounder, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And you know what, too? I think the same holds for bodybuilding as well, frankly. Now, A, I'm a big believer, and people have heard me say this before, you've got to look better than anybody on the street. You know, you, got, you have to have something to show. But yeah. um, bodybuilding is not just for the heavyweight guys either. People might be yeah. like, oh, Alana, you know, you, you competed in bodybuilding, you know, and sometimes students will kind of tee-hee. And it's like, I'm a light heavyweight. I compete at yeah. 198, uh, near yeah. the top of my class. I'm only 5'9". That's pretty heavy. Uh, yeah. And that's the best I can do. <laughs> so, you know. 5'9 you know, um, and 200 pounds, it's a twink. I mean, come on. Yeah, because so. I mean, that means you're 230 in the off season, you know. Yeah. And I mean, exactly. um, but the point being is, yeah, not, not just for the super heavyweights either. Mm-hmm. Um, although I will admit, uh, I tend to be a little bit bored sometimes watching the, like, uh, lightweight class, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. But those guys, sometimes they look amazing if you look at the national level, so. Um, yeah, neither of these sports are just for the biggest of the big. Yeah. So. Okay. I think that's about it for now. Yeah, we'll we'll go to Joey Antonio in the second half here, and. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, we're gonna go to break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be talking to Doctor Antonio about satellite cells and muscle memory and and stuff that we haven't talked about before. Sweet. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. (laughs) 
weekly fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, welcome back, everybody. This is Phil and Lonnie, and we're with Dr. Jose Antonio. Uh, Joey, we're, not only is he one of the founding fathers of the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, but he's also um, got a deep background, in fact, postdoctoral training, I believe, in uh, muscle physiology. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, most people know me for the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition. But really, uh, you know, what really got my interest when I was in grad school was looking at um, uh, muscle fiber hypertrophy and specifically muscle fiber hyperplasia. So, you know, I've always had an interest in that area. And, um, you know, I still read that area. I think there's a lot of really cool research that comes out of there. So, yeah, I love that stuff. Fantastic. Uh, we had a question on our Facebook page last fall, and it's something that just stuck in my mind. It's why I figured you were the guy to ask. Um, but let's start with this. Uh, the question was in reference to satellite cells. So can we start with that? Just explain to everybody, what are satellite cells? Yeah, satellite cells, um, they're really a very important part of skeletal muscle. And um, I, always, uh, I always describe satellite cells as cells that sort of sit on top uh, of muscle fibers, they sit on top and around it, and they are uh, what some people call the stem cells of muscle fibers. They, um, their primary function is to repair damaged muscle. So, for instance, let's say you do heavy a heavy workout, like heavy eccentric loading, you're really sore. Um, that damage to the muscle fiber or muscle cell will activate satellite cells, and they'll proliferate, or you'll make more of these satellite cells, and they will go to areas of, of damage and repair them. Another thing with satellite cells is they may also be involved in uh, uh, not only repair but also growth of, of muscle fiber. So, for instance, you know, if you engage in a typical bodybuilding program, obviously you need to activate satellite cells, which in turn will, will um, uh, bind to existing muscle fibers and increase the, the cross-sectional area of those fibers. And I guess if you're really extreme with training, uh, it's, it's entirely possible that satellite cells will be activated uh, they'll proliferate and actually form new muscle fibers, and that's where you see, you know, people talking about muscle fiber hyperplasia. So satellite cells are critically important, you know, primarily for repair, because really, let's face it, most of us probably don't train hard enough to induce muscle fiber hyperplasia, but we all train enough that we probably get some skeletal muscle damage. Um, and certainly, whether you're an endurance athlete or even a strength power athlete, you're going to activate those satellite cells uh, anytime you work out. And clearly, the more damage you induce, the greater they're activated. So, uh, and, and also, you got to think of this: your muscle fibers have to uh, regenerate regardless of the type of damage. So, I even say, you know, if you get stabbed in the bicep, you activate satellite cells. If if you do heavy uh, negatives doing preacher curls, you activate satellite cells. In fact, I saw this was way back when. I remember I saw a couple guys at the gym. I think this was when I was in Dallas doing my PhD. Uh, they were doing. Um, standing uh, uh, calf raises. They were doing seated and standing calf raises. They'd alternate it. And in between sets, they would punch each other's calves. And I don't think they knew anything about satellite cells, but with the idea that if you damage it a lot, it seems to induce growth. Wow. (laughs) And that's in part related to satellite cells. Wow. So (laughs) when we talk about 
actual hyperplasia, getting more grown-up muscle cells, you know, differentiated muscle cells, I'm guessing that's a very slow process. Even if you do eccentric you know, negatives and that sort of thing or punch each other in the calves, this is going to take <laughs> a, v- a very long time to really add up to much. Is that right? Yeah, I would imagine that. You're really talking, you know, elite powerlifters, elite bodybuilders, um, in elite, elite Olympic weightlifters. I mean, guys who really have been training for extended periods of time. And, and interestingly enough, if you look at some of the literature on, on androgens or anabolic steroids, there's evidence that show that, that androgens also activate satellite cells. So let's, you know, mm-hmm. if you couple, you know, intense heavy resistance training with uh, the use of androgens, which clearly is, 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 is quite prevalent in the strength power sports, then I could see where muscle fiber hyperplasia might play a role. So, um, but, you know, for most people who work out, you know, the recreational lifters, I'm not sure... Uh, hyperpla- muscle fiber hyperplasia really plays a role. It's primarily muscle fiber hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, now, once a satellite cell um, merges, you know, it donates its nuclei, however it, this whole process unfolds, um, how permanent is that? is that change once they help out a damaged fiber? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And uh, I remember when I was in grad school, we had talked about this, like, uh, you know, as muscle fibers hypertrophy, you're obviously adding nuclei to it because satellite cells are fusing with existing fibers. So you get this hypertrophy, and what happens if you just completely cease training and you go through a detraining period and muscle fibers atrophy? The idea of, of muscle memory had always been one of, it's, it's not really muscle memory, it's your it's neural memory, meaning your brain sort of knows, how to go through certain exercises, and that's why you can regain some of the strength and size you previous, previously had. But really, there's in, uh, very recent evidence showing that if you get, if you induce hypertrophy, add more, add more nuclei to a muscle fiber, and then have it atrophy, what you actually end up with is more nuclei for a given muscle fiber. So what happens consequent to that? Let's say you, uh, you now you're dealing with an atrophied fiber, but with a lot more nuclei it makes it that much more easy for that muscle to, to in essence, re-hypertrophy when you, when it, you uh, uh, give it another training stimulus. So, right. you know, that, I think, explains in part what muscle memory is. And obviously there's a neural component your, or your central nervous system. There's a component there where, you know, strength is an issue. But, um, but yeah, the idea, it's called the DNA unit or the nuclear domain. Um, you want to think of each nuclei that peppers a muscle fiber as sort of being the master of that domain, so to speak. Okay. And that's why, you know, it makes sense for bodybuilders to do exercises in, in as many different angles as possible because it, 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 in essence, targets different parts of the muscle belly and the mus- and, and muscle fibers. So, um, and, you know, and, and that's why you have such different shapes of, of muscle bellies when you look at, uh, when you visually look at bodybuilders. Right. Okay. Uh, what about, um, Phil might be thinking about this, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, strength athletes. So, is there a time for eccentric exercise in their off season? Should they be looking for soreness to end up with a bigger engine, so to speak? Uh, you mentioned the neural component versus satellite cells. You know how make how much of this is neural versus actual muscle tissue? Um, does it behoove the powerlifter to uh, understand satellite cells a little bit too? You know that's interesting because uh, powerlifters have to compete in weight classes, and I would imagine that if you're in one of the smaller weight classes, whether it's powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting, you actually can't afford to put on much weight because then you'll end up in the higher weight class. So there's a trade-off there. But if you're dealing with the heavyweight or super heavyweight class, where you know basically having more mass is is important, then I think doing heavy eccentric loading would be important. But 
if you're one of the smaller lifters, you know, I've always wondered, how do these guys, particularly in the, in the really small Olympic weightlifting classes, how do some of these guys, you know, uh, lift three times their body weight when doing the cleaning, clean and jerk? It, it, it can't be they're just adding more mass because they're, they're within a strict uh, weight, uh, weight class. So, to me, that's got to be primarily one of economy or, or efficiency. Um, so, you know, neural training. But if you're in the heavier weight classes, then I would imagine, yeah, just put on some meat and then your engine basically is bigger. Right. Uh, one last question because I know you're pressed for time. Um, what about ways to maybe facilitate this process? Is there anything that somebody could do to help out their satellite cells to either can they generate more once they use up the ones they've got? Can they eat or sleep or get massage in a certain way? Is there any way to manipulate the system beyond just uh, working out till you're really sore? Yes, that's, that's a good question. Um, well, besides androgens, I mean, that clearly okay. activates satellite cells. Um, on the supplement side, there's data to show that creatine, you know, and it seems like creatine does everything. Well, yeah, it's kind of odd that it does. But, yeah, creatine supplementation actually can increase um, the number of satellite cells in, in, in human muscle when you do heavy resistance training. So that would be another one. Um, another thing, uh, and I can't reveal the source, but uh, we'll be presenting this actually at the ISSN conference, um, uh, preliminary human data showing that uh, if you do uh, very, very uh, what I would call painful stretching between sets, sort of to mimic the old stretch model I did with birds way back when where we put a weight on a bird, stretch the hell out of it, and induces muscle fiber hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. There's some preliminary data that in humans who do that, it induces greater uh, muscle, not muscle fiber, but muscle cross-sectional areas. And, you know, I would think theoretically that's because you're activating more satellite cells. So, um, and, and, and the way that would work is you do a set, and then you stretch the hell out of a muscle, then you do a set again, stretch the hell out of that muscle, and before you know it, you're activating satellite cells like crazy. So I think the key is... is um, giving the muscle a stimulus that's, that's quite novel so that it has to respond by activating satellite cells. Okay, one quick clarification before I let you go. So doing that aggressive stretching, that's not just going to add sarcomeres end-to-end to, end to make a longer muscle. You could actually end up with a, a thicker one. You said more cross-sectional area. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny you bring that up. Yes, adding sarcomeres end-to-end end or adding sarcomeres in series, but in this case, adding sarcomeres in parallel. So it's actually a thicker muscle. Oh. Uh, and this would be the first evidence of just doing this, you know, crazy stretching between sets, inducing greater hypertrophy. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And, you know, this almost reminds yeah. me of the old, you'd see Arnold Schwarzenegger stretching the hell out of his lats between sets, like in Pumping Iron in some of those old movies, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Science supporting that, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, okay. yeah, interesting. It's interesting stuff. That'll be presented at the ISSN conference, hopefully in June. All right. Well, I wanted to thank you for taking your time. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for having me on. It was fun to, uh, fun talking. Yeah, I know it's really brief, but um, listeners, just so you know, I mean, Dr. Antonio and myself, we're calling we're calling in with Phil. Thank God that Phil can record uh, from our university offices. So this is we're making it happen. We're making <laughs> yep. it happen. All right, thanks, guys. Okay, thanks. Thanks Bye -bye. a lot. All right, so Phil, what do you think of that? Is there is this something that you've ever given thought to before? Oh, definitely. I mean, as far as the, you know, the, the weight class athletes and whatnot, I mean, there's definitely, it's, I, I deal with people that are in very lightweight classes and very big weight classes. And it's, you know, at points it can be easier when you're working with a, a heavyweight or a super heavyweight. And it's, um, it's pretty easy to get strong when you're just get, 
just eat and get bigger. Right. You know? You're right. But, um, you know, when I'm working with, like, you know, a 123-pounder or a 138-pounder or whatnot, then, yeah, I mean, we've got to... The, the, the training has to change, and um, it, it definitely volume kind of takes a back seat to... Uh, um, no more dynamic moves and a little higher percentages and just trying to maximize what we can get out of the, the motor they have. Right. It was that interesting is. that Joey said, um, you know, so you could stay in your weight class. You don't want to move up. And I think that's almost a philosophical point, you know, because yeah. he's assuming that an athlete wants to stay almost like a wrestler in the lowest weight class possible. Yeah. But then there's also the school of thought, I suppose, that some guys are like, hey, I'll do eccentric work. I'll do hypertrophy work. I'll just... I'll grow up through the weight classes, right? Yeah, now. and you see that. I mean, definitely. I mean, a, a good a good point there w- with that is Kendrick Ferris, who's pretty much our number one American weightlifter right now, and arguably his coach kept him light too long, um, and now they've moved him up a weight class, and his lifts are markedly better uh, to the point that. Uh, they almost did him a disservice by not moving him up a few years earlier because now he's a couple years older and in a sport that's for you know the young athlete um it's kind of sad that they didn't move him up three four years earlier and you know tap into those resources much earlier because now he's actually starting to become competitive on the world stage. oh that's very interesting so you're suggesting maybe they could have done some of this eccentric work purposely try to activate activate some satellite cells feed him more just get the whole bigger engine kicking earlier. Yeah, because, I mean, he's definitely hitting, even percentage-wise of body weight has gone up greater by him adding adding weight. It's been definitely more than, uh, um, it's been a greater percentage more than a pound-for-pound pound increase. You know, pound on the bar versus pound of body weight. It's more like, you know, one to three type of thing going on. So it was very worth his while moving up, and it's kind of sad that he didn't do it earlier. And I've seen that in other people. I mean, I'd, I'd even argue that, you know, I held on to the 242 class too long because there was about two and a half years there that I was stuck um, at just under a 700 deadlift, and then I moved up to 275, and within months, you know, a couple of months, it was 700, 715, 725, 750, just just from moving up, and I kind of tapped out what I could do at that at that given weight class, and it's that's very individual. Um, you you kind of got to watch the athlete, and I mean, if you if you start stalling out and you're just not getting anywhere from punch to the clock and you're, you're actually working hard, um, you might think about moving up. You know, it, it might be the wrong weight class for them. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it kind of depends on the individual, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that so. was interesting. He was talking about um, androgens and what they do. I, I actually have a book. Um, it's a government-published book about livestock, believe it or not. But they're obviously ranchers and farmers are very interested in getting wildly hypertrophied yeah, you know, critters, cows, whatever, um, and they're, they've toyed with things like growth hormone, different and apparently, trenbolone um, mm-hmm. really dramatically increases the number of nuclei in a muscle cell. And so, like Joey's saying, that's so you wake up those baby muscles, you know, that sort of lie quiescent among the the adult differentiated muscle cells, and they even more aggressively start to donate their nuclei. But that's also cool that he said creatine would do that. I mean, not yeah. everybody wants to take <laughs> Trembolo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, that's very cool. And actually, there's been some news lately, and I will try to post it somewhere on our Facebook page. But there has been news. I could have swore they said something about uh, this whole muscle memory concept and gaining and losing 
satellite cells. And I'm not well enough read on the loss of satellite cells. I get the idea that you might use up a lot of what you've got. I mean, let's face it, if what you've got, Joey said they're almost like stem cells, right? They're sort of baby, yeah. and then they'll differentiate. They'll either help out an adjacent muscle fiber or, or you know, form myotubes and eventually become a full-blown cell themselves. Um, and I can see the idea is once you start to use those up over the years, I mean, you and I, are we? have we been around long enough that we've already activated most of our satellite cells? Yeah. You know, and that's something that's always made me curious. But there's a, a recent paper about this I'm going to try to post because they sort of led me to believe that you might be able to lose some of what you've got. And I don't know if it was the nuclei that are already in your muscle cells or if it's less of the satellite cells themselves. Um, but it was a weird paper, and it really drew my attention. And actually, that's what made me think about contacting Joey. But I think gotcha. he laid down uh, you know, a lot of the basics with that. And it is cool to know that I think once you've got a certain amount of muscle size, it's very likely to return, it sounds yeah. like. Well, and you see that a lot. I mean, especially, I mean, even recently with people like Stallone and Arnold and them making these bounce comebacks. And Arnold's looking pretty good you know, now. Um, I had heard that, but I haven't seen so, I saw him, he looked, frankly, he didn't look too good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, for his age, he's looking, you know, from what I've seen lately, he's looking pretty good. And it's it's amazing how much he can bounce back. Of course, you know, he's telling, he's showing his age, but um, what is he? He's got to be close to 70. Yeah, um, yeah. So, no, no and I've seen it. I mean, in, in just, you know, regular people I know that kind of taking a break. I had one athlete in here that started about, Oh, geez, it's been close to a year ago now, but he came in and he brought in pictures of himself. I'd never met him before, and in his, like, early 20s, he used to be lean at, like, 300 pounds, um, and he was an aspiring bodybuilder, and then he just quit training for 10 years, um, and he came in here at 230, and, you know, I need to watch my diet, I need to do this, I want to lose some weight. Well, we just started training hard, and all of a sudden he gained, like, 35 pounds. Oh, and my. Yeah. It's just, whoo, he just blew up again from, and a lot of that, I mean, it just came back unnaturally quick, but it was just, it was just waking up stuff that he had from before. Yeah, uh, well, like Joey said, I mean, once you <clears throat> donated and implanted all those extra little nucleuses in every, you know, yeah. every fiber, yeah, you just, a, a little bit of hypertrophy just goes a long way. Yeah, you know? and it was, yeah, it was pretty amazing seeing that. And, uh, and you know what, one last thing, too, is, I don't know if you've noticed this, we never talked about this, but you can see former lifters, even once they're old, they might not look, you know, tight and super uh, muscular. Uh, the mm-hmm. muscularity is often gone, but isn't it funny? You can look at a guy and be like, well, he looks like an old lifter. Yeah. They've just got, Oh yeah. I don't know, I'm not sure it's a good look necessarily. Yeah. There's more of something there. Yeah. No, no, I hear you. Yeah, there's definitely a, um, a, a framework that's in place that you can tell that they used to lift. Right. Yeah. There's no tautness. I mean, they lose a lot of that youthful tautness to their yeah. skin, maybe. But um, I don't know. It's like their biceps, even though it's sagging a little, it's bigger. You know, yeah. their deltoids or their pecs. You know. Yeah. Stuff like sure. that. So. Okay. Well, cool stuff. Uh, I appreciate you getting free too, Phil, so we could get yeah. this stuff done. No worries. No worries. I'm gonna get hard back at it. So I got. I got lifters. I got to bring them to a meet tomorrow. So, oh, all right. always, always something going on. Yep, walk so. the walk, baby. That's right. I all will right. talk to everybody later. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been another good show. Okay.
Hey, sports nutrition fans, join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.